Rising Giants Network. In 1983, on an oddly cold day in April, the four young 17-year-olds who make up the newly formed Metallica have arrived to the studio to start laying down tracks for their debut album. A conversation between Lars and a studio executive starts. Hey dudes, heard a lot about your music and what you guys have been doing out west. Word on the street is, you're gonna melt my face with your metal. Oh, you know it, dude. We're super stoked to put together our first album. Well, what's it gonna be called? Metal up your ass. No one took that suggestion seriously. From the Rising Giants Network, this is Legendary Rock Story Season 1. The story of heavy metal titans Metallica. The band is gearing up to release their debut album and are slated for a meteoric rise in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. Their album is going to inspire legions of bands and would ultimately give birth to the rise of a new scene called Thrash Metal. This is Episode 2, Thrashers with No Limits. Metallica were serious. They actually wanted to name their first album Metal Up Your Ass. In fact, they were so serious that James Hetfield already had the whole album cover idea sketched out. A toilet, the now legendary Metallica logo, and the name of the album right under it. That's right, they wanted a toilet on the cover of their debut album. A toilet. Lars, excited, calls Zazula. Zazula here. Johnny, it's Lars. We got a name. Ah, hit me. All right, you ready? It's metal up your ass. Uh, I don't know, Lars. Why not? Look, do you want to sell this thing or not? Uh, yeah. You gotta change the name. Hey, Johnny, we're calling that metal up your ass, so stick it up yours. No, you're not, James. Although Metallica were a little pissed at Johnny for not taking the name they wanted, this is 1981, and as cool as the 80s were, music stores and record labels were not going to be happy with a name as explicit as metal up your ass. They needed a name that was going to sell, something that they can stock up on store shelves nationwide. The band knew that what mattered was the music, and Metallica had 10 kick-ass tracks that they wanted to put out. The band needed a new title, something that would stick. So Johnny said no to the name, said distributors won't stock the album. So any suggestions, James? Nothing. Cliff? Fucking distributors, man. Why don't we just kill them all? Yeah, man, kill them all. Kill them all. That's the name. And so you have it. Songs like No Remorse, Whiplash, and the legendary concert staples Seek and Destroy, along with other tracks ultimately made up Metallica's debut record, Kill Em All. Kill Em All was a collective of songs that James, Lars, Dave, and Cliff wrote on and off since they met. Sometimes individually, sometimes as a collective, and sometimes during jam sessions. But when Metallica settled on the 10 songs on their record, those were the only 10 songs they had in their arsenal. 10 songs separated them from being a bunch of kids to getting on a trajectory towards metal dominance. Away from family, friends, and all the way on the other side of the country, Kill Em All was ready to go. And the small record company owned by Johnny Zazula, Megaforce Records, ready to put its weight behind it. 
So, the album just came out, but that's the true beginning and the real test in Metallica's first true step into the music business. How will the album be received on a global scale? Will people care? Would anyone pay attention? Well, success doesn't come overnight. Metallica had to get on the road and show the world who they truly were. Johnny and the boys discuss touring possibilities. Johnny here. All right, boys. Distribution is underway. But we need to get your energy out there on the road. All right, Johnny. Let's do it. We want to go all over the world. Leave no club, bar, parking lot. Metallica is ready to go. The Kill Em All For One tour. The first tour to support the release of their first ever record. Metallica toured North America and played with bands like UK-based band Raven and up-and-coming thrashers at the time, Anthrax. Suffice it to say, Kill Em All was the beginning of a new era in heavy metal. The band came out to critical acclaim. Publishers like the Metal Forces call it one of the heaviest and fastest albums of all time. The Chicago Tribune called it Speed Metal with a Touch of Misfits and Judas Priest. Whoa! Just the right amount of metal for the boys. The album went on to peak at number 155 on the Billboard charts, an unthinkable feat for any starting band at the time. The success of their debut album inspired labels across the country to start to seriously look into the new movement of thrash. The thrash metal movement was gaining momentum and doors were opening for Metallica's peers. Bands like Slayer, Anthrax and even Mustaine's newly formed Megadeth started to pop up on the radar. Writing on this initial and surprising success, Metallica was going to head back to the studio to start recording their next record. With the release of Kill Em All, Metallica had inadvertently inspired a new generation of musicians to write songs which would soon be known as thrash metal. The movement gained momentum and Metallica were leading the pack, so when it came to their next record, the pressure was on. On an early January sunny day, Lars talks to the guys about the prospects of the next record. Guys, I think we'll have to step this one up. James, what do you think? Yeah, Kill em All did great, but what can we do that's even better? That's right. Listen, check this guy out. His name is Fleming Rasmussen. Seems like he's done some pretty solid stuff before. Hey, this guy sounds great. Let's get in touch. That's what I thought, Kirk. There's one catch, though. He's in Denmark. You guys want to fly out there? And so, on 20th of Feb 1984, Metallica headed into Sweet Silent Studios in Copenhagen, Denmark to work with a producer that would work tirelessly to explore new bounds to their sound. The legendary Fleming Rasmussen. Fleming didn't know much about the band before they made First Contact, but even though he didn't think the band were technical wizards by any stretch, he loved the raw, unfiltered energy that Kill Em All presented. In fact, Fleming thought that Metallica was the best shit he'd ever heard in a long time, to put it in his own words. On a busy Sunday afternoon in Copenhagen, Fleming made his pitch to the boys. Look guys, I love the sound and energy of Killemol. It's quite frankly one of the freshest sounding albums I've heard in quite some time. I think we can harness this energy and build on it even further. I think your energy is currently understated and I want to make it bigger. We will work hard, but we will have a great record. Lars was visibly excited. 
a fellow Danish musician was about to make his band sound even bigger. This could be a long-term thing. After all, this is the guy who produced one of Lars's favorite bands, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. He knew that Metallica was on its way to the big leagues. Writing a follow-up was a weird one for the band. With Kill 'Em All, Metallica had ample time with no real process of writing. But with their second album on the horizon, they needed to figure out who drives the writing process. Throughout the Kill 'Em All tour, the band recorded their jam sessions and captured all the ideas. James and Lars would then go into the studio and decide which riff ideas make the cut to become full-fledged songs. This would eventually become a tradition in Metallica's writing process throughout the years. As it was, Metallica had enough material for about four to five songs. They felt this was enough to build the foundations of the record. During this time, Fleming made it a point to make Metallica better players, and so that meant ton of rehearsal time. Rehearsals bred some of Metallica's biggest tracks. One of Metallica's most iconic songs, For Whom the Bell Tolls, was in fact written in its entirety in the studio. It is a ferocious five-minute metal anthem based on Ernest Hemingway's novel of the same title, a song that would be chanted by thousands of fans in stadiums for decades to come. Another staple is Fate to Black, a ballad that demonstrates Metallica as proficient songwriters. It took the band four weeks to complete the album, but they did not know any luxuries at the time. They had camped out in the studio, couldn't afford a hotel, and had a tour booked at the end of that month. It was work, work, work for the boys, with no rest in sight. During the sessions in mid-Feb 1984, Kirk Hammett comes to the boys with a suggestion. Guys, I've got a great name for the record. Check this out. Ride the Lightning. I was waiting to record my guitar parts, and I spotted the phrase in the book. Check it out. It's the scene where this criminal asks his lawyer what happens when he gets convicted. The lawyer responds, why, then you go on to death row at state prison and just enjoy all the good food until it's time to ride the lightning. Love it. Oh, that sounds cool. Awesome name, brother. James looks at the guys and has an idea of his own as well. This is a great idea for a song, Kirk. The title track could be written from the perspective of a convicted murderer sentenced to die. Kirk and the boys love the idea. With its iconic blue electric chair cover art, the album was released on July 27, 1984 via Megaforce Records. Due to the lack of promotion provided by Megaforce, along with the fact that Megaforce could not afford the hefty price tag that came along with the recording, $30,000 to be precise, Metallica were not happy with their label and wanted out. At a rock gig in San Francisco later that year, Michael Alago, an executive from the major record label Electra Records, saw the band perform live and thought he had to sign them. After convincing his colleagues and his boss, Michael approached the band with a contract. Michael loved the boys and what they were doing. It was raw and energetic. It moved the whole room whenever they played. Sign with me, he told them, and I promise you promotion, bankrolling of records, and to hook you up with solid management. 
The band agreed, and Elektra Records re-released Ride the Lightning in November 1984, with a strong promotional campaign to support. Q-Prime management, led by Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch, would be appointed as Metallica's new management team. With these elements in place, the motions are set for Metallica to become a major player in the music industry. Ride the Lightning was received to critical acclaim. Rock magazine Kerrang! even gave Metallica credit in expanding heavy metal's boundaries. Metallica were not just building their band, they were also defining heavy music. The album eventually broke the top 100 Billboard charts, making the band one of the top 100 bands in the United States at the time. That is crazy. It's crazy for a heavy metal band in particular that had no music videos and hardly any radio play to be on the Billboard charts. It was a grassroots movement that was building and Metallica was its leader. Metallica went on a rigorous touring schedule on the Bang the Head that Does Not Bang tour. They started getting booked for bigger tours and even bigger festivals. At the end of 1985, Metallica were wrapping up their tour and getting ready for their third record. But what they didn't know is that with Triumph, tragedy awaits. It's mid-1985. Lars and James were already planning and plotting for their next record. The band had a good year to say the least. A successful tour, a new record label, a Billboard 100 album, and most importantly, recognition. Metallica had a lot to prove to the critics, the fans, and most importantly, themselves. On an off day in San Francisco, Lars and James got together to talk about their upcoming record. All right, James, I think we need this next one to be tight, like really tight. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Tighter, bigger, heavier, hell, even faster. Yes. All right, so let's keep this in mind as we go through the jamming tapes. And just like their previous record, Lars and James led the process of putting the songs together. Their influences on this album has widened as well. Instead of only listening to new wave of British heavy metal, Metallica introduced some David Bowie and other musical icons into their musical diet. This resulted in a much more diverse and rich mindset as the band built the tracks for what would become 1986's Master of Puppets. With almost all the songs written, James and Lars asked Cliff and Kirk to come into the studio and chime in with some of their ideas. Cliff, a classical music fan himself, weaved in a few melodic elements into the album. His main contribution came to the instrumental track, Orion. Cliff tells the band that he's been getting into musical theory. He's been listening to a lot of classical stuff. And he felt that the bass on this album was going to be something super special. And indeed it was. The melodic bass notes he wrote were soulful and defined the instrumental track as one of Metallica's most powerful musical pieces. Kirk Hammett would later call it Cliff's Swan Song. Arming themselves with an arsenal of songs, Metallica were confident enough to start recording the album. The next step was to look for a studio that upped the ante. After checking out multiple studios across the United States, Lars had an idea that he wants to share with the boys. 
Look, guys, I know we're not very happy with the acoustics of these studios. Not to mention the ridiculous price tags we've been getting. What if we go back to Denmark for this record? Hear me out. The exchange rate of the dollar to krona works in our favor. Also, we had such a good time when we recorded Ride the Lightning. Silence in the room as the band mull over the information Lars unloaded on them. James chimes in. I like it. Let's do it. Will we do it with Fleming again? I have a few ideas. What do you think of Getty Lee from Rush? I had a conversation with him, but scheduling seems tight. Yeah, I like him, but it won't work. Let's stick to Fleming. He was great the last time around. And so it was set. Metallica were to return to Denmark for both economical and musical reasons to record their third album. The album they had the most writing on. The first album they were going to release on any major record label. Lyrically, James wanted to cover a large scale of topics. With the title track, Master of Puppets, James talks about falling into the traps of addiction. Disposable Heroes was about being a tool in someone else's war. And Leper Messiah was inspired by televangelists who asked people for money in return for healing. Musically, both Kirk and Lars took lessons respectively. Kirk worked with legendary guitarist Joe Satriani to practice how to record more efficiently. Lars wanted the tightest sounding album, so he worked day and night to become the best drummer he can be. The band worked hard and perfectionism was the name of the game. The band worked tirelessly from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. every night and would even record cover songs just to sharpen their writing and playing skills. During the actual recording, James would record at least six guitar tracks for every song until he settles on a tone that he likes. He would replay the riff over and over and over again until he is 100% happy with the result. And that left everyone tired. But the vision was clear. This album needed to demonstrate Metallica as amazing musicians. On March 3, 1986, Master of Puppets was officially released. And in two weeks, the album sold more than 300,000 copies. Rolling Stone magazine said, The lightning-fast riffs of Battery, Disposable Heroes, and Damage Inc. set the bar for thrash metal. The magazine continued, While tracks like the crushing The Thing That Should Not Be, the moody Welcome Home Sanitarium, and the proggy Orion, showed that the genre was capable of so much more than just speed. In late March 1986, huge news arrives at the band's doorsteps. The Prince of Darkness himself, Ozzy Osbourne, wanted to take the band out on tour. Metallica would be exposed to hundreds of thousands of new fans as they supported Ozzy Osbourne from March 1986 through to August of that year. They would be playing on huge stages bigger productions, and larger arenas. This helped Master of Puppets climb the charts and peak at number 26 of the Billboard charts. The band would go on to support the album on the Damage Inc. tour along with bands such as Anthrax, Armored Saint, and Metal Church. But even though Metallica was going full steam ahead, tragedy would befall the band that would put their entire future into question. On the night of September 26, 1986, the band were on a tour bus in Sweden heading towards their next touring destination. 
the bus was not as comfortable as the band had hoped. Cliff and Kirk would come to an arrangement. They would draw from a deck of cards in order to get dibs on which bunk they would each sleep in. All right, I'll draw first, Kirk. Cliff draws the ace of spades. Ha! Ace of spades! I'm going to sleep in your bunk. Fine, fine, you can have it. I'll sleep up front. Probably better anyways. Driving all night to their next destination, 7 a.m. hits and the unthinkable happens. Metallica's bus hits a patch of black ice, skids off the road, and violently flips until it finally slams the ground. A moment of silence follows. The crew and band members look around in a haze while trying to grapple with what just happened. Thinking the bus was going to explode, everyone scrambles to climb outside of the bus. A bunch of disoriented young men shouting and trying to figure out what was going on. Everyone seemed to be accounted for, except for one person. Kirk was the first to realize it. He looks back and recognizes Cliff's legs under the bus. The driver tries to salvage the situation, but it only seemed that he was making it worse. Hysteria ensued and James started aggressively asking the driver what had happened. The surviving crew tried to move the bus from on top of Cliff, but it was too late. There was nothing that they could do. On that fateful September morning in Sweden, Cliff Burton had died. He was 24 years old. A young band at the beginning of their bright career, the surviving members of Metallica head back to the hotel to mourn their fallen brother. Tears, drunkenness, and despair. That night, James would walk out onto the streets at 4 a.m. in tears, shouting, Cliff, where are you? Cliff, where are you? It was a crossroads in Metallica's early career. No one no one could replace Cliff. How could they? He was a fundamental element of Metallica. He was part of the very fabric that built the initial band. How could they possibly replace him? With tour commitments and with the belief that Cliff would have wanted them to go on, Metallica had to make a very important decision. What happens next? On the next episode of Legendary Rock Stories, the band explores its options to move forward and a new person walks into their life. Legendary Rock Stories is a Rising Giants Network production. Written and narrated by myself, Basil Anatawi. Sound design and audio engineering by Bashar Najjar. Produced by the Rising Giants Network at BKP Studios. We have researched this show to the best of our abilities. Some of the dialogue may have been enhanced to bring you closer to the story. 
All sourcing can be found in our website or in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe to The Legendary Rock Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out all of our upcoming shows on risinggiantsnetwork.com. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you on our next episode.